and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Hal Whitman. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today we are very excited to be joined by Micah Meadowcroft. Micah is Research Director for the Center for Renewing America and a contributing editor of the American Conservative. He was a Robert Novak Journalism Fellow at the Fund for American Studies in 2021 and 22. For our Fall 2023 issue, Micah wrote an essay about the classical education movement in America. He tells the story of how the first classical schools were founded in the 1980s by people dissatisfied with the state of modern education. He traces the evolution of their philosophy and methods. He also shows how the movement embodies a distinctly American blend of old and new. Micah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's good to be here. Of course. Yeah, Micah, so we want to start with you really in talking about the origins of the classical education movement in America. You start with these three schools that were found in the 1980s. So we've got the Care Paraval Latin School in Topeka, Kansas, the Logo School in Moscow, Idaho, and the Cherney School at Greenlawn in South Bend, Indiana. That's right. And I think you, you kind of note how this is three different groups of parents in three different places all had the same idea. They didn't really collaborate with each other. In some ways, they're part of a similar movement, but each one is a little different. But yeah, kind of start with those three and tell us what were these different groups of, of founders? What was their inspiration? Why did they feel they needed a different type of educational institution compared to the public schools and private schools that already existed? Yeah, sure. Well, I think this kind of Douglas Wilson, the founder of Logos School in Moscow, Idaho, has described his eventual discovery of Caraparavel Latin in Topeka as a Leibniz and Newton situation, right? <laughs> a kind of uh, simultaneous discovery of calculus. And you have that kind of simultaneity throughout the story of the classical education revival. And and as I, I'm sure we'll get to later in the conversation, like these first three schools, there's an element to which there was another simultaneity prior to them where Trivium School in, in Massachusetts sounds, you know, in its discovery, almost exactly like Logos. And uh, we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But basically... Care Paravel was the first one in 1980, slightly out of the gate, and that was inspired by the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas. And that was a short-lived but quite influential, especially within Americans, America's Catholic intellectual community, kind of school within the school. It was actually shut down. The allegation is it was shut down because they were proselytizing, which they weren't proselytizing. Huh. But like too many students were converting to Catholicism, <laughs> and they thought that was inappropriate for a for a state university. And then I, I think I think like the official reasons were just sort of you know misuse of whatever, not un, unclear academic payoff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But this was this really fascinating program. The the provost at Hillsdale College when I was there was a graduate of this school or of this program, and it kind of it was giving a classical education of a sorts to college students. And so these graduates of that program were convinced that the college experience that like their peers who had not been in the program got was, was, you know, lacking. And then Mm -hmm. also convinced that as they got, as they progressed in life, had their children and became professionally successful, they realized that their public schools around them were also completely, you know, missing something important. Mm-hmm. 
And so they wanted to give that to their children, and, and that's where that school came from. It was also heavily influenced by C.S. Lewis, as you can tell from the name. Right. And what's interesting about Care Paravel is no one's heard of it, <laughs> even though it's it's kind of traditionally speaking, conventionally speaking, one of the the older or the oldest, but it's but but not actually. Yeah, I think we heard yeah. of Logos School, but maybe not Care Paravel, or at least maybe I don't. That yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. they just they persisted, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but they've they've done a great job. It's a, it's I really enjoyed my visit there. But they don't they don't host conferences. They never start an association. They don't publish their curriculum. They just simply do a good job. And they've now become members of the Association of Classical Christian Schools. Now, that is the association that was founded out of Logos School in Moscow, Idaho. Mm. And because of that and because Doug Wilson, who I've already mentioned, is such an institution builder and a bit of a pugilist. We're recording in early November and he always... His blog, every November, he does no quarter November, where he just <laughs> stops qualifying his statements and just simply, for a month, just says it exactly how he thinks it is. Unvarnished. Um, yeah. Yes, the unvarnished truth. So <laughs> anyway, he started Logos School in 1981, and they they were originally in a, in a roller rink. Mm-hmm. My The classical Christian school my parents started that I attended K-12, this is where my passion for this topic comes from, mm. was inspired almost directly by the Logos School because Douglas Wilson wrote a book called Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. Right. And that's a reference to Dorothy Sayers, who in in the late 40s presented a lecture in Oxford called The Lost Tools of Learning in which she gave this kind of invented tradition of medieval education, this idealized account of how the medievals in learning Latin, teaching Latin, using Latin as the language of scholarship and for for just educated discourse, how that was a particular approach, psychology of education that had been somehow lost and and was recoverable. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when she's writing because I think from a British perspective, it may not have been clear that it had in fact been lost. I mean, I think I think the UK kept what we might call a recognizable classical education hmm. uh, in their schools longer than we did. Mm-hmm. Um, but she clearly saw like where the winds were blowing, and the World Wars really did kind of cement modernity's total displacement of sort of uh, medieval or pre-modern inheritances. Sure, and of course, the United States being a much more weird amalgamation of modernity and classical traditions we had at that point the progressives had already kind of run havoc over american education so so i i assume she was aware of conversations for example at like the university of chicago Hmm. around the same time as they were debating whether to maintain core curriculum standards most of america's elite universities in that period were moving away from kind of expectations of a classical primary education right if you if you read like 19th century harvard application tests it's all you know translate this into latin translate this from greek into english and then from english into latin that kind of thing back and forth back and forth so there there wasn't even there was a, a long time american tradition of this thing and there was obviously a long time british tradition of familiarity with mm-hmm. the classics and especially with the learning of latin and so sayers had suggested it and and wilson had read and i can confirm this for people who have read the essay i later mentioned that the Trivium School was inspired by a late 70s republication of Sayers' lecture in National Review, of all places. Yep. And that is also where Doug Wilson 
had read it while he was in the Navy. He was on a submarine and uh, huh. subscriber to tribute to conservative magazines there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> All that to say, Logos School has the biggest footprint currently, probably, but that's shifting a little bit as as the movement multiplies. And then the third school, conventionally, is Trinity at Greenlawn, which was founded by People of Praise. Listeners might be familiar with them as the ecumenical charismatic group that Amy Coney Barrett's family mm-hmm. are members of. And there's a Trinity School here in Northern Virginia as well as one up in Minnesota. And they were, in some sense, because they were already a an established countercultural community, they illustrate more clearly and in kind of more easily understood terms the impulse for the rest of classical education founders as well, which is a concern that in the late 70s, America's public life had lost its way, and specifically in public education, that something important was lost and the culture was transforming too quickly. And rather than kind of go in the individualistic direction of, and of homeschooling, there was the opportunity to mm-hmm. build an institutional support for maintaining mm-hmm. modes of life that they felt were conducive to virtue. And so they found this school inspired, as I've mentioned already, by this trivium school in Massachusetts. Now, so to take a step back, I grew up in the classical education world not only knowing about these three schools. That was kind of the, the, the standard narrative was 1980 and 81, these three schools pop up. When I went into my Novak Journalism Fellowship and start investigating, Trivium is the surprise. And, mm. and it was the, the Trinity School at Greenlawn, obviously because they were inspired by Trivium School in Massachusetts. They had known it was there all, the whole time. But because for various cultural reasons, like basically because the ACCS is predominantly evangelical Protestant, because it became the loudest voice in the broader classical school movement for a long time until, and even, I think even now it's still the largest footprint and still the most kind of established. There was just a lack of familiarity with the Catholic side of this movement. I see. And so that included, I think there was less discussion with Trinity School than, for example, right, Care Paravel joins the ACCS eventually. Trinity School is its own thing. They have their own network. And so basically it just it got missed by the people who were doing the first draft of this history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of cool. I was a history major in undergrad. So it's kind of cool to, to get to discover like, oh, yeah, this needs a – it's not a revision in the classic sense of mm-hmm. reframing something for political purposes. This is just a simply, oh, there's a missing detail here. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't ever you know lost. There were people who mm-hmm. knew it. But it wasn't part of the standard narrative. So that was that was kind of the the big one of the big factual historical points to make in this essay. Yeah. So you've mentioned the Trivium School and you characterize the the movement more broadly as a kind of humanist revival. And I think one of the things that Dorothy Sayers at least saw saw the need to revive um, in her Lost Tools of Learning essay is the Trivium, um, this medieval uh uh, way of learning consisting of grammar, logic, and rhetoric as a structure for education. So what has been the role of the trivium in the classical education movement, and how has that role kind of evolved over time? So Sayers sets up the trivium as an architecture of student psychology, that students, when they're really little, kids are given to the absorption of knowledge. 
And in some sense, in the same way that in a grammar school or in the in the early stages of learning a, a foreign language, you just have to focus on memorization, rote memorization, both of vocabulary and of kind of grammatical schema. That is, in some sense, the most conducive mode of education in Sayer's account for the young. Right, right. And then she sets forth logic dialectic as the second stage, basically approximating adolescence. You know, as the child grows to self-awareness, comparison between the self and others starts questioning why the world's the way it is, questioning power structures, etc. And so she proposes that the tradition of formal logic, syllogism, etc., and the meme, that those be given, offered to students as, as, a, as a means of kind of navigating the, that period of questioning in their life. And then rhetoric, obviously, we, we mostly think of rhetoric in political contexts, but it's just beautiful self-expression, and, and <laughs> you could say that Western civilization has been built on rhetoric, mm. right? And and so the f- kind of finishing component of the schema she gives is this emphasis on now that you have the words and you now have learned to piece together the ideas, how do you present them as persuasively and beautifully as possible? Right. And so, so there's a strange blend of going back to these three components of language that in communication that would have been of a piece with each other in the actual scholastic classroom. But she's doing this post-psychology move of sketching it to human personality and human growth. That's somewhat controversial even within the, the classical education movement that as people have, as the movement has matured and there have been debates about, you know, how useful is that framing? And different schools approach it differently. So most ACCS schools, Logos in particular, the school I grew up in, Cedar Tree Classical Christian in Vancouver, Washington, they model the structure of the school itself pretty closely to Sayer's presentation of the trivium. So basically I was in pre-grammar from kindergarten to second grade. I was in grammar school from third to fifth grade. It was in logic court or fifth to sixth grade logic was seventh and eighth rhetoric one rhetoric two rhetoric three rhetoric I four see. yeah right and and then that just kind of frames the curriculum and how mm-hmm. you think about what kind of stage of learning you're in etc and other schools especially the ones that don't do k through 12 so for example trinity and trivium are both sixth or seventh grade through 12th grade that basic account that sayers gives doesn't work and but at the same time because she's just rooting this in certain approaches to parts of learning anything because this is always supposed to be a framework for learning anything right a life a life of lifelong learning that you begin with the grammar of something and then you kind of in in your familiarity with it you can then pick out the relationship between ideas uh the relationship you have to these ideas what questions are being asked or are demanded to you know are are being demanded of you um, and then how to present your conclusions so you can integrate that really into any stage, all three. And, and, that's, and that's part of how I think the movement has shifted is there's been a de-emphasis on it being simply a descriptive framework and more of a, I, I think that there's a confidence in teaching the trivium that then has demanded in the evolution of the movement whether there's more to be done. And so I think lately much of the discussion has been characterized by character formation, virtue mm-hmm, and habit, mm-hmm. and concern with essentially, like, we know these kids do fine on the SAT. 
that isn't how we want to measure these things anyway. What kind of people are we producing? What are we training them to love? What affections are we inculcating in them? And and that's that's become kind of the current main conversation. And and I think is part of why and it's it's an essential conversation. And because it's being had right now, there are a few strange political cracks, fissures in the broader movement mm-hmm. emerging now that I think makes sense because now that we're discussing these essential features of like to what are we orienting students that th- that's a question of the good and it's you know mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a question of of ends rather than means and and so disagreements come to the surface sure yeah and so micah yeah so you mentioned that one disagreement about whether is it more about the content um and what we're passing on is it more about you know you mentioned a lot of these schools are christian schools is it more about forming people as Christians and a sort of moral formation or more about a method like the trivium of how they are taught. And then also you mentioned another tension here in the movement of, you know, Sayers is talking about returning to a medieval form of education, so a pre-modern form, but obviously that's going to conflict with modernity in the age we're in now. But you, you mentioned, for example, for the Trinity Network, while they do have a great books curriculum, they also do things like computer programming. So they are kind of confronting what students are facing in the modern world as well. How is the movement so rec- reconciling these tensions, whether it's content versus method or kind of the pre-modern medieval view of education versus what students are facing in the modern world. Yeah, so so Trinity's very impressive in their emphasis on the hard sciences at the higher levels. I think that's often admitted to be something of a weakness amongst some of these schools by other other parts of the movement. Now you could also say, you know, if you have a good grounding in the questions of natural philosophy and and kind of if if with a sufficiently if you've been taught to ask the right questions to make distinctions to use kind of say aristocratic not aristocratic excuse me aristotelian well that is something aristocratic somewhat aristocratic <laughs> well, we'll talk about that but later. yeah 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 <laughs> to use to use aristotelian distinctions <laughs> definitions etc you're going to ask you know you're going to be prepped for asking the kinds of scientific questions you need mm. but you need the scientific grammar right and so and so that's certainly an important thing one of the big debates is just grades right like grades and tests should should a classical school if it's really a classical school care beyond should it care to translate its assessment of success into recognizable generally quantitative formats or should basically you know internal essay writing oral examination a character assessment should that replace letter grades percentages standardized tests so one interesting conversation, I think, or a sort of illustration of this tension, the classic learning test has emerged as a very popular alternative to both the ACT and the SAT. Mm-hmm. And it's being, you know, it was designed for, to be a part of this movement. Um, yeah. But it was also designed to appeal as broadly as possible in this movement. So it's an interesting illustration, I think, of some of the necessary tensions because you have a test that needs to be usable by the religious schools, by the charter schools, by the homeschoolers, needs to be legible to colleges, some of which are going to be Christian colleges, some of which will be not necessarily Christian colleges. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the University of Florida system might have just been approved. I to, think I did see that, yeah. To, right, to yeah. use the CLT. And then, yeah. And and you'll know it's classic learning test, not, not classical. <laughs> not classical. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. tripped um, us up, yeah. Yeah, that yeah, gets tripped up. People, <laughs> people mess that up pretty often. And so that, I think... Like there's a sort of irony, perhaps, from one perspective, of a standardized test of 
the classics, <laughs> right? <laughs> Perhaps and, contradictory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but it makes certain assumptions, right? It, it, it's it sort of implies content probably is 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 the major part of what's going on here. That it's a that the cl- a classical education or a, a good education is is one of transmitting a certain tradition or a certain canon versus, as we've already discussed, uh, a sort of trivium oriented mode of thinking, mode, right. of, mode of learning, which has its own you know ways you might want to test or not test that so all that's i I, if if i sound like i'm pulling at various threads and like arriving somewhere unsatisfactory it's because we sort of are that that this like it's a big movement (laughs) and and any movement that has that achieves this kind of this much at a certain point people have to clarify what they're there for and i think that's what's happening right now so with the clt because it's a it's a content-based testing like one of the ongoing conversations is just who should be included in the Western canon, right? What counts right. as the tradition? And if that's what you're basing a classical education on is like a particular set of texts, if it's a if it's essentially a great books course, but for high schoolers or, you know, middle schoolers, then the canon war really matters. And right, like, that's an important question. Like yeah. where you fall on the Mortimer Adler question mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. do you need to update it? You know, right. And one of the ongoing conversations right now is, is it classical to care about diversity? For its own mm. sake, right? Is there some sort of yeah? That's interesting. Is is it you know in, in kind of similar to our legal conversations around disparate impact? Like, is it per se evidence of an incomplete canon if you have not very many women on it or not very many non-Western figures? Well, then is it, is this just a Western tradition? Like, should you be seeking out non-Western figures? Right? Where does this start? So that's something listeners should anticipate. You know, if they look into the classical education world, if they're already part of it, uh, that they, these kinds of conversations are, are coming back to the surface. And it's really a resurrection of the same conversations that were happening at the university level prior to basically in the in the late 50s and the early 60s that caused the kind of cultural crisis in the 60s and 70s that prompt the founding of these schools. <laughs> so, you know, they're a little cyclical, I guess. Yeah, right. What has been will be. Yeah. And to everything, there is a season. And so, <laughs> right. so we're, we're, we're going to, I think, I think we're approaching a sort of pretend, you know, for some people, it's going to be a come to Jesus moment, literally, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. this is only doable within a Christian context. Yeah, yeah. For other people, it's going to be, you know, the, they're going to necessarily have to make certain claims about what the, what is the essential teaching of the Western tradition, the tradition even more broadly, what have you. And that's going to be very interesting. Mm. So you remarked that the U.S. is the only place this could have happened, This the emergence of this movement in the form that it's taken. You have a, a nice phrase about that saying that there's a, a peculiarly American combination of close-to-earth dwarfish realism and confident aspirations of gianthood. And so... Yeah, how do you think this project of classical education, how does it relate to the project of American republicanism? And can it contribute to helping us engage in self-rule? Yeah, so the late Ian Lindquist, who in in, in my writing of this is, is himself a kind of giant whose shoulders I get to stand on. I got to stand on a lot of giant shoulders, my parents, Douglas Wilson, etc. throughout this process. He wrote, a, an essay about classical education for national affairs, particularly highlighting the kind of Tocquevillian institutionalism mm-hmm. of the project. Right. That that this is very scrappy, can-do pioneer spirit, which is something that I immediately resonated with and recognized. I was like, yes, that's absolutely what's going on. And and so he just made the sort of comparison 
kind of in a, in a historical parallel sense. But I also think the comparison can be made at the regime level too, which is that the United States is this very strange experiment in building a big tent for you have figures like Hamilton and Jefferson who are really modern men. And Hamilton specifically says at one point, you know, a new political science is being developed. Yep. And Jefferson is himself this kind of Lockean kind of natural philosopher, also other things, you know, a, a scientist and is, is kind of developing modern political science as well. But it's in this moment where the inheritance of the English common law and constitutional system is really deep the memory of the English civil wars and mm-hmm. the settlements that came out of that and the compromises that came out of that are also really fresh. Cromwell, etc. Sure. Regicide. All of these things. And then there, the, the classical education tradition itself has not been lost at that point and is, is extremely healthy and some of the things that they're talking about at the Ivies because it's easy to forget the Ivies were I think all founded but at least almost all of them were founded as seminaries, right? Pastoral right. pastoral training schools. Yeah. So they're having these metaphysical conversations that would not be out of place in 15th century Paris, right? It's like genuine scholastic discourse, but they're also products of 150 years of humanism and kind of Renaissance, early modernity, and then they're looking forward to building something new. And so the American regime is this weird kind of res- bringing forward a idealized account of the classical world, especially the Roman one. Mm-hmm. I think we, we kind of overemphasize the Greeks mm. in the American context. The founders were definitely much more familiar and friendly to Libby and the Roman tradition, broadly yeah. Cicero, et cetera, mm. than they were to Plato and Aristotle. No, you could say that they're just because of that. Like, if you're getting your Aristotle, if you're getting your Plato via Cicero, it's a pretty good Plato. If you, et cetera, you know, or like if you're familiar with, <laughs> yeah. if you're being taught Saint Augustine in in college, you're you're getting a pretty good Plato too. Like, like you can make these arguments, but but it's definitely a Roman character mm-hmm. to the way they're thinking about these things, seen through their rights as Englishmen, but then also the opportunity presented in building something brand new for the ages. The Declaration of the of Independence is this like particular encapsulation of, you know, the soaring modernist rhetoric of the first few paragraphs, and then like detailed legalistic account of their case. Yeah, via both English common law, international law, their case against the, the monarch, and and so classical education as a movement similarly combines a remembered past, right? A, a, a certain romantic characterization of both the actual classical world, the medieval world, and early modernity in a way that's very characteristic of early modernity itself. Like this is what kind of the Renaissance humanists were doing. And that's where the the, the quote, the classic quote about dwarves on the shoulders of giants was picked up by... John Salisbury is very much a, a medieval figure and he's quoting Bernardo Chartres. But that that sort of... Education by example was what really characterized the humanists was this emphasis on you read the you, you're going back to Plutarch. You're reading the biographies of great men. You're re- memorizing poetry that will inspire you to great deeds, et cetera, et cetera. And then, it's, of course, but this is 1970, 1980. 
So like these are <laughs> like this is the Cold War. Like godless communism is something that, that you yeah. know that people are concerned about. Sure. Um, the this is also America's going through like enormous social upheaval, yeah. changing kind of the relationship between the the citizen and the state. There's been this period of centralization and modernization, and and everything's quantified, mass culture, etc. And so I think it's a it's just a peculiar peculiarly excuse me American project to say well okay we need to kind of use the technologies available to us you know which in the early days was cassette tapes but then very quickly became the internet and like I think a huge reason that this movement has taken off to the degree it has is because it's been it's used the internet very effectively yeah mm-hmm. and and I um it's not quite growing as fast as homeschooling but it's growing for the same reasons that homeschooling right. has in the last few years especially sure uh just enorm- exploded in America um, so yeah it's this I, I see it everywhere and and I was partly inspired by Remy Brog mm. a French literary theorist philosopher who refers to this phrase or this, this he has this term secondarity and and he characterizes the Roman world and the medieval world is, as, as defined by secondarity this taking up of the things that have gone before keeping the parts that inspire you keep that, that you're devoted to and and kind of being characterized by looking backwards, mm-hmm. even as you're moving forward with dynamism. And so I think that characterizes the American founding in, in very distinct ways, and that characterizes this movement in, in really obvious ways to me. Yeah, yeah, Mike, I think that's a pretty compelling explanation of both the founding and this movement. And yeah, so as we start to, to wrap up here, one kind of uh, final thing we would ask about was use this phrase in the piece toward the end about class education trying to produce an aristocracy of anyone or an aristocracy of everyone, where I think today we think of our education system as we think of it as sort of meritocratic, that it's supposed to help the the hardest working, most talented students rise above no matter their income or station. It obviously quite hasn't worked out that way. That's the ideal. This movement is offering a different ideal. And you also note that, okay, yes, maybe it's not possible for everyone to be an aristocrat. Like we still have natural inequalities and we're still born in different to different families of different wealth. But yeah, what is the aspiration there? Does a classical education movement spread broadly across the country get us closer to a broader aristocracy than our current meritocratic system does? I think it does. So the classical education movement is, in its early days especially, but just in general, a direct rebuttal, refutation of, rejection of, the progressive takeover of American education, which was a small-D democratic motivation. It was technocrats trying to create what they believed to be an appropriate, appropriately democratic education type. And it was really educating people for a modern economy, modern war economy, we might even specify. Mm. And it was, I think, an education to the lowest common denominator. And it was part of the American shift from kind of being recognized and thinking of itself as a republic to a, a word represent, a representative democracy. Mm-hmm. And so... So much of our education system, both from kindergarten through the university system, is totally uh, taken over by this Dewey, among other figures, uh, progressive vision. And so when I talk about an aristocracy of anyone as being one way of thinking about what the classical education movement is up to, that's part of the rejection of this democratic spirit. And I think that intersects well with linguists. Tocquevillian observations about mm. about the movement, but it's also a return to 
the founding and a kind of Republican spirit and an understanding that we, rather than looking for mechanisms of leveling, we should give opportunities for full flourishing, for full development and, and growth to our full capacities. And so by teaching to essentially an aspirational vision of education, right? Because in the ways that it's imitating the humanists, which was itself an education for the elite, for noblemen, right. to be better noblemen. I think this is a, is a return to the founder's vision of what republicanism was supposed to look like, which was a world where natural aristocrats of a, of a, of a sort... And from you know certainly from the European perspective, like all America is is truly democratic and leveled, and, and there are no aristocrats. But but that's of course the warning we get from Tocqueville, mm. among other things. But that this mode of education gives something beautiful and hard that claims to be true without compromise. Like this is not a relativistic education, and is oriented to real claims of good and the good. And so that reimposition of hierarchy and distinction to our education system is really important. And, and it's also just, I think, more American to say that everyone mm-hmm. should, have a, should have a go at it. The meritocratic system, and listeners should hear heavy air quotes. <laughs> I, 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 I was I, trying to use that when I was saying yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> the meritocratic system we supposedly have is pretty bad on its own terms because at every level it has been oriented to a one-size-fits-all orientation to equality and equity and leveling and flattening. So if we have, like, if, it, if we have decided that it is in fact good to, for the best to emerge, they have to be tested. And, and, and that's much more something that classical education can offer than what is currently on offer. That is itself, though, I think, one of the debates that the movement as a whole is going to have to have. I think there's like, you'll know, I said aristocracy of anyone. And I specifically said not an aristocracy of everyone Mm -hmm. at one point. And, and I conclude with the reminder that that kind of any claim of an aristocracy of everyone is self defeating, self, self refuting, self contradicting. And, but that impulse is there in the movement. There are people who want to maintain the equitability, the small d democratic spirit of contemporary education, but they like the content here. They like the vision. They like the beauty made available to students. And but those are intention, right? Like the the the, the impulse to flattening and the recognition and admiration of excellence our intention. And so people are going to have to choose at a certain point, like classical schools can either dumb themselves down to meet the demand for that, or they can continue to maintain their standards Mm. and say like, I'm sorry, we just don't think everyone's the same. And some people are going, this is going to fit better for some people than for other people. And that's okay. And some people are going to do better in this process. But the promise is that this is part of your inheritance and it's worth being familiar with anyway, even if you struggle. Like mm-hmm. even if, and, and at the same time, you're getting the kind of education that people used to go to liberal arts colleges for Yeah. to some point, you're getting a taste of it. So, so even if you're not the kind of person cut out for a four-year degree and you're going to go apprentice at the local car mechanic, 
you now have already tasted your Western inheritance. And that's the beauty of like, that's the beauty of an education oriented to lifelong learning that is, that understands its task as giving you the foundations for that rather than just the foundations for being a cog in the global economy or, you know, a drone in the modern political regime, administrative mm-hmm. state, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, well, Micah, fascinating essay, and thanks for coming on to talk about it. I think the way you talk about how it's a uniquely American movement is really interesting and, and something we'll keep an eye on since it seems like it continues to, to rise in influence. So thanks for again for joining us to talk about it. Thanks very much for having me. It's been good to be here. Of course. If you'd like to read Micah's essay or other articles National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com. Consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers retain unlimited access to our online archives. You can find more episodes of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.